0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: We are
2: living at a time where we can no longer afford to not question everything and everyone who's in any position of authority. We live in a very narcissistic and codependent culture, and this isn't just like in our personal relationships, in the leadership. So it's very important that A, we're in tune with our own discernment and trusting of ourselves and knowing what is okay with us and what is not, so that when we spot what isn't, we can ask questions. Not necessarily to get to this us versus them mentality mm. or to be like a Whistleblower, but to just take amazing care of ourselves and be sovereign.
3: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
4: They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in.
3: Elizabeth, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah. So, you know, you and I go way back. You have been to one of our events. You've actually been a guest on the show before. And given that, you know, a lot has happened since you were last year, I figured it was kind of a no-brainer to bring you back for round two and, and grill you with my crazy questions. So, uh, on that note, I want to start by asking, what did your parents do for a living and how did that end up impacting the choices that you have made with your life and your career?
2: Ah, This is a fun, fun question. So my mom has worked in human resources my whole life and we always joke that, so she's like the queen of appropriate behavior. So uh, how that affected me is I, I'm really rebellious, right? Like I have issues with authority and, you know, Even because growing up with a religious background as well, like being Catholic, Mm -hmm. the idea of so much right and wrong, especially as a woman, especially around a woman's body and like this is appropriate and that's inappropriate. I am innately a very curious person and innately someone who wants to like go, but why? Mm -hmm. And well, I don't know about that and find out for myself and go my own way and forge my own path. So it's hilarious that my mom has always been in human resources because, you know, I'm my company is called Wild Soul Movement. My book is called Untame Yourself. It's like the opposite of my mom's existence professionally. Uh huh. However, she's been at the same place for 30 plus years and she has an amazing reputation and of the highest integrity. And what's cool, as I get older, I realize how valuable it is. And probably from having a podcast myself and realizing how interesting people are. I love asking my parents questions about, you know, their life experiences and and all these stories that I've never heard before. Uh And it turns out my mom is also just like such a benevolent badass is how I would describe (laughs) my mom like there's so many things where she's like gone to bat for people stood up to like higher executives like said no when other people would have said yes and been out of integrity so i just have a lot of respect for my mom and and realizing that you can be in a traditional role but still very much have your own authority and integrity and stand for whatever it is that you believe in even if we differ a lot in our beliefs where in some cases we do um my dad has been more of a jack of all trades. When I was young, he was in telecommunications. So, like, as you know, cell phones were first becoming a thing. My dad would be the guy, like, building, like, climbing the freaking towers and stuff. He used to travel a lot. He also was uh, an athlete. So, I think maybe when I was still a baby, he was still playing uh, minor league hockey. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of injuries though, and then he also got into golf. So he's been a golf professional, giving lessons. He's worked at country clubs. He coached the high school. T- team um, at my high school, the golf team, rather, and so I learned from my dad a lot of that you can you can be multi talented, you can have many different passions, and you can pursue many different things. So, in a lot of ways, even the way I look, I'm a very very much a blend of both of my parents.
3: Mm. You know, that sort of aversion to authority and actually channeling it into something that is useful and that willingness to question it. You know, I I think there are people who have an aversion to authority, but are afraid to question it. And I'm curious what you would say to them, Uh, particularly in the case of women, because I think you brought up a very interesting point. Um, You know, kind of takes us back to a little bit of the conversation you and I were having yesterday about the fact that I grew up in a culture where there is, you know, whether anybody admits or not, there's a double standard for how men and women are treated. And and I'm curious what you would say to that.
2: We are living at a time where we can no longer afford to not question everything and everyone who's in any position of authority. We live in a very narcissistic and codependent culture, and this isn't just like in our personal relationships in the leadership. So it's very important that A, we're in tune with our own discernment. And trusting of ourselves and knowing what is okay with us and what is not so that when we spot what isn't we can ask questions, not necessarily to get into this us versus them mentality, mm. or to be like a whistleblower, but to just take amazing care of ourselves and be sovereign because so much of our culture and what you see right now in the media and our politics and in what's going on in the world is because way too many people just trusted the authority figures. Mm -hmm. And now people find themselves in a position that's really undesirable. And now they're willing to blame the authority figures. So I really believe in just taking full responsibility for our experiences. So if you're going to complain or blame, you better be also asking the questions and be informed about what's going on around you, does that make sense?
3: Oh, yeah, it makes sense i mean it it opens up a, a whole sort of landmine of of you know questions that I, I want to talk about in more detail. You know I think you're right, absolutely we should be questioning authority now. The thing is that if you look at certain people, they're in situations where questioning authority could be incredibly disruptive to their lives. I yeah. can tell you as somebody who worked in a job where I was you know pretty much a subpar employee. The idea that I would ever question authority seemed really crazy, and the moment that I did, you know, there was hell to pay. I mean, the 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 repercussions of questioning authority were much more significant than oh, you know what? I feel good that I questioned it. Suddenly, you know, I find myself out of a job and you know, kind of scrambling to pull my life back together. So I'm curious what you have to say about that because I think that you know it's uh it's it's really it's easier said than done is what I would say.
2: Yeah. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about because it's like the art of having a courageous conversation. This is one of the most popular sections of my whole book because it's about the energy you bring and, and how you question, hmm. right? Right. So if you are pointing fingers or being accusatory or coming in, like trying to make people wrong and be right, if you have any kind of like need to be right, that's going to be met with opposition. But if you're coming at it from a place of really wanting to like, I, I, I put it this way, be a force for expansion, for love or for good, right? Or for the greater good, whatever it is. If you have mm. benevolent intentions of just wanting what's best, for everyone involved, that's palpable. People are going to be able to feel and sense that. And if you choose your words wisely, leading with a lot of questions like, I'm really curious. I know this is the way it's done. What's the purpose of that? Or why do we do it this way? I'm just curious. I had this idea If we want to give feedback, sometimes the way we question is by offering feedback Mm -hmm. because we want to like offer a different perspective. We can go, oh, I had an idea about this. You give it, take it or leave it. But can I share it with you? Even asking for permission first before we question or before we offer the feedback creates a much more fertile environment for collaboration and conversation versus confrontation or combat.
3: Mm, Wow. So why do you think then so many people are afraid to have what you call courageous conversations?
2: Because it's never been modeled for them. They've never seen it. Most of us learn confrontation only, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, in the home environment. Like I grew up in a very, uh, a lot of around a lot of violent communication. That's just the, like my mom jokes, like we're not passive aggressive. We're aggressive, aggressive. <laughs> like <laughs> People are often shocked at like the things that my family will openly discuss with each other. And, and it's not always in a, a harsh way, although, sure. you know sometimes between the adults it was. And so not that that kind of communication was directed towards me as a child, Uh but if you're around that and that's in your environment, it's like secondhand smoke, like you're picking up on it. Your nervous system is adjusting to like being scared when people yell at each other or when there's any kind of confrontation. In some cases you learn better to just keep quiet. So like I don't get in trouble or I don't get blamed for something. And so it's really just a matter of how we've been conditioned and and how we've grown up and what we've observed in the realm of how people communicate differences, different opinions Um, or uh, challenges Hmm. amongst each other. So most people are just scared because they don't know how to do it. It hasn't been modeled for them. And they haven't seen it done in a productive, loving way that actually has a positive outcome that doesn't just like damage relationships or crumble situations. Mm
3: -hmm. So a lot of parents uh, are listening to our conversation. What would you say to them about this in terms of parenting? I know you're not a parent, so it's kind of a loaded question.
2: It's a loaded question, but I'll share this. Do you know, have you ever had Philip McKernan on the show? Yeah, of course. Okay. I love Philip McKernan, And when he was on my podcast, I said, well, I'm not a mom, but he said, well, I would challenge that Elizabeth, because you have a mom and you've been mothered. So you have a perspective. And so, and also for me, I work with thousands of women all over the planet, most of whom are moms. So what's cool when you're a childless woman in your thirties and you're at that age where a lot of your peers are moms and a lot of your clients are moms, Mm -hmm. they will share things with you. They won't share with others because there's no fear of being judged because I'm not a mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I get a lot of insider on the parenting thing. So here's what I would say. Um, having any kind of basic understanding of like a trauma response or emotional response. Like if you sense danger, you're going to go into fight or flight or freeze or hyper-socialization where you try to control everything around you. So if you are contributing to or creating a home environment that is volatile or violent in any way, you're programming those responses into your children and here's the deal parents like no kid escapes like there's no parent who's ever parented so well that their kid (laughs) couldn't use a little bit of therapy at some point you know what i mean Yep. but i think one of the things i share all the time that was outstanding in my own upbringing that i think made a huge difference even though i did grow up around like the violent communication you know my parents were separated divorced remarried each other like so much conflict in my house um My parents loved me so much, and that was always communicated. There was never a moment when I felt unloved. They always, like, I think they were, like, whispering into my crib when I was an infant, you can do anything you set your mind to. And they always supported me. And agree to disagree is, like, a hallmark in my house. Like, we don't always agree on everything. We'll challenge each other. Sometimes it does get a little loud or aggressive. But my parents, it was very important to them to really create the space for my brother and I to be who we are which again double a double standard on that because with a religious upbringing there was a lot of right and wrong so there was some confusion too but the core of everything i just said is this if someone feels just so deeply loved not like they would ever be abandoned not like there's anything they could ever do that these people would turn their backs on them the other stuff they can it'll be okay
3: hmm. So I think it was, it was actually I'm glad you brought up the notion that, you know, no, no uh, kid gets through, you know, the experience of childhood without at least having some scars that would you know, justify at least a little bit of therapy. You know, uh, why. you know, so I'm curious, how do you undo the bad programming in adult life or at least how have you undone it in yours?
2: Oh, I love this so much. This is uh, this is my insatiable curiosity of life. How do we retrain ourselves and deprogram and decondition ourselves? Cause the thing is this, if you're a parent, you're just one touch point for your child. They go to school, they have to be around. With it. This is actually a question I love asking parents on my podcast. I'm like, all right, so you do, you're a conscious parent, like you put in all this effort, you do your very best to like raise your child in this conscientious way. But they still have to go to school and be around all the kids whose parents aren't doing that. So, <laughs> you know, there's no way around it. So I think that coming back to like the original. Question of questioning everything, just being really curious, staying really curious, and noticing when something like vibes with you and doesn't. Which ultimately is discernment, right? I, I, I talk about this all the time: difference between judgment and discernment. When we judge things, we place value on it. We're going, that's right or wrong, good or bad, better or worse. But discernment is just that is for me or it's not for me, without getting involved in placing all the value. And so I think when we can kind of hone and connect in with our own discernment about things, Uh that makes everything easier because we're always able to check in and go, that's for me or that's not for me. Did that answer the question?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, let's do this. Um, I want to have you walk us through how you've gotten to the point of doing the work that you do, Um, the trajectory of your career, significant inflection points um, starting all the way back from maybe the most significant or important jobs that you've had along the way.
2: Yeah, okay, this is great. Uh, most significant, <laughs> my first job ever was, my first like real job, I was 19 years old. And have you ever heard of Cutco Knives?
3: Yeah, totally. All
2: right, summer 2002, Srini, there were about 20,000 reps in the United States slinging and blades, and your friend Elizabeth D'Alto was number 10. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow.
2: I sold $48,252 of Cutco Knives that summer, and it was the best Training ever a lot of people will tell you that any kind of sales training is the best training, and the reason why is because you just get so okay with dealing with rejection uh-huh. and, and 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 working the numbers it's all a numbers game, so whether it's creativity whether it 's entrepreneurship whether it 's dating like it's just about getting in front of more people to increase the likelihood that you get the result that you want and so I literally called everyone in my high school directory when I was still with my high school directory, everyone in my brother's middle school directory. Um, And I just was totally cool knowing that I would hear – however many knows to get to a yes. And mm-hmm. um, I also, while I was in that company, I stayed with them for five years and I went through their management training programs. I was interviewing groups of people like every single day of the week, running training seminars almost every single weekend of the year when I got, by the time I graduated from college, running my own district office. I uh, went to college in Baltimore. And so my territory after college was Washington, DC. I joked that my office was like the dangerous minds of Cutco. Um, <laughs> my reps were coming from like PG County. Southeast DC for anyone who knows the area, not like the pristine areas for sure. Um, and they were, they were amazing. It was so fun. And, you know, and I grew up in New York, so the diversity was like a home, home environment for me, very comfortable and, you know, competing. And I loved, you know, the recognition of being able to train people and they could earn more money based on the effort that they put in or even earn awards. And so I would win company trips and I would, you know, have all these incentives. And so that was a really valuable experience for me, public speaking, learning how to manage people. I managed and trained my own assistant managers, my own receptionist staff. It was like the most valuable training that serves me so much to this day. When I got burned out on that, I still I pivoted into like a corporate sales position which believe it or not I only lasted a year in a corporate job. <laughs> It was uh, at a company called Sentas where I was selling uniforms in Manhattan to like nice hotels. So I would go, you know, when you check in, the people in the front desk what they're wearing, or the housekeeping team what they're wearing. Like that's what I would do. I was out- outfitting those people. One of the coolest accounts I ever had actually was the Nederlander Theater Group. So a lot of the Broadway, I think they have nine of the different Broadway theaters or Nederlander theaters. That was super cool to be like fitting the um, the staff who like helps you and seats you. A- forgetting what they call those people at this moment. But, um, while like hairspray is like they're in rehearsals, So super cool there. But, uh, that was where I realized that I can't do corporate like to have to show up to a place every day. That wasn't my place. Cause with the code job, it was, it was always on my own terms. It was my office or it was my schedule or, you know, whatever. And there was some structure to it, but ultimately I was building my own thing, even though it was in the framework of a company. But, um, Yeah, working at Cintas wasn't my jam. I had this boss, this British guy. I'll never forget one morning. You know, you're an outside sales rep, so you kind of come and go. You set appointments, you do your thing. And um, I missed the uh, sales meeting one morning because I couldn't stand these meetings. They were excruciating. And he comes up. We'll call him Rob comes up to my desk and he's like chewing gum and he's wearing this like white button down shirt with no t-shirts. So I, I can see his nipples and he's gross. It's just disgusting. He always has bad breath and he comes over to my little cubicle. He's like, we missed you. I'm not going to try to do a British accent. He's like, we missed you at the meeting this morning. And I was like, is that your way of asking me where I was this morning? <laughs> I was just like, just ask me what you want to ask me. like don't do this like passive aggressive beater on the bush crap. so it really didn't work for me. Yeah. From there, um, while I was in the space of not knowing what I would do next, I always had a passion for fitness. you know I've been working out since I was 12 ever since um, it was 1994 when the TLC album Crazy Sexy Cool came out. Do you remember that album? Totally. And they were so hot and they were gorgeous. And I remember the video for Creep with their pajamas and they're open and like their abs are out. And I'm like, damn, I want those abs. It was the same year, actually, that uh, Janet Jackson had, I forget the name of the album, but the song If. I mean, she was just so badass. And I was like, oh, cool. How do I get my body like that? And that's when I started working out. I literally had like VHS tapes from, um, it wasn't even target yet. It was called like Caldor on Staten Island. And like my mom had these purple dumbbells. So I would use those. And so I had this passion for, you know, fitness anyway. And I had been working out at a New York sports club in Hoboken, New Jersey. And the fitness manager actually asked me, he was like, Have you ever thought about being a personal trainer? I'm like, no, but what does it entail? Cause it was like right at that moment when I was like, I can't do this sales gig for much longer. What am I going to do? So I started, I literally took like a 60% pay cut to learn how to be a personal trainer. And so I did that from about 2008 to 2012. And right around 2010, in between there, I had started to discover all these people who were doing things on the internet and making YouTube videos and all this other stuff. So I had begun doing fitness things there. And so my original business, once I quit all kinds of working for other people, including being a personal trainer, was online fitness stuff. And even there, it was just like not satisfying enough. And so I don't know. Are you into human design at all?
3: Kind of. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, you'd have to d- define it for me. I I probably Um, am without knowing it.
2: (laughs) It's just one of these, it's another one of these typologies. So, you know, you could enter your, you know, birth date, time and place and something online and it'll spit back out to you some things that might be useful to know about yourself. I'm a manifesting generator and one of the qualities of manifesting generator that really resonates for me is we can't do things we're not passionate about. It's very hard for us to show up for things that we're not passionate about. And so for me, if I'm not like helping people, like that's what I'm put on this planet for. And so even with the fitness, I started to realize it was all very externally focused. And even with my personal training clients, like, People could be working out, doing everything, eating right, following all the quote rules, but any kind of internal thing that could come up, mental, emotional, something in a relationship, finances, the internal stuff could just wipe out the physical results so swiftly. And that's what got me really curious about how do I bridge these worlds between like physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all these things that I'm super interested in. And at that time also was like, and, and the art of embodying femininity in a world that is, you know, quite patriarchal in its culture, not not in a man-bashing, blaming way, but like we're kind of cultured to be very masculine and to operate in a very masculine way to get ahead. So all these things all added up. And I I think I recommend this book all the time, Pam Slim's Body of Work, because in 2013, when I started reading that book was how I saw all these things I just described to you actually had completely prepared me for the next phase and doing what I do now.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
4: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
3: Wow. Okay. So many questions come from that. Um, I want to go back to Cutco uh, and you know ask you. you know, it's funny. I knew about the Cutco story. I didn't know that you were that good at it. <laughs> I mean, I knew you were good at it, but I, I didn't realize that I didn't have all the details. Um, I'm really curious what you learned about communication and human behavior from the Cutco experience.
2: Oh, my God. I'll never forget this one time. Talk about a, a, a lesson in emotional intelligence. I had an appointment set up with a woman that she didn't show up for like two or three times. And the third time I left her a note that was not nice. And she responded by telling me that it would really be useful for me to learn about emotional intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, thanks for the unsolicited feedback. But um, I actually, you know, what does that mean? And so, you know, I did, I did really learn how often people are saying one thing and it means another But also how people really want to help others and people really care, but how also people get themselves into situations, which now I understand to be codependent. I didn't have that word back in the day, but like, you know, people who have to ask other people permission. And I understand, by the way, if someone's married and like they have like agreements around, I won't spend more than this amount of money without checking in, like that, that makes total sense. But how people will also cop out and blame things on others. Mm -hmm. um, I really learned how a lot of people are just not honest. Cause I've, I've always been a very intuitive person and I could just tell when someone's full of crap. And so, um, But also people love to talk about themselves. People love to be acknowledged. And so, and and I'm such a curious person. So I just learned it was a lot more fun and there was a lot more connection to be had when I could shine the light on the other person, not in a manipulative way, not in like a give to get way, but because I was just curious. So like when you're being welcomed into someone's home, because you would do your knife demonstration in someone's house to like look around, compliment things that you actually liked, ask questions about things, meet people's family, take a moment. Like, connect and so I, I did learn a lot about connection in terms of being curious and interested in what other people value, but not inauthentically, right? So, if there's something in someone's house that I'm not interested in, I'm not gonna ask about it, you know, <laughs>
3: right? Right,
2: I'm not gonna but- pretend.
3: You know, the, the other piece I wanted to ask you about is the actual selling aspect of this because I, I don't remember where it was. And I remember you, you, you wrote a post on Facebook about this about, you know, the amount of people who don't know how to sell. I happen to be blessed with a business partner who's a masterful salesperson. Like, I did my time in sales, I was pretty shitty at it, but I realized that to this day, I still use a lot of the things that I learned. Like, I speak in front of audiences and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, I'm doing what I did in sales here, except in a much more enjoyable context. Uh, yeah. You know, even when, you know, we did an event, like, I literally, called every single person personally. And I was like, Oh, my God, I'm doing the job that I hated 10 years ago. um, But I'm doing it for the thing that I created, which is a totally different experience. But I'm really curious. um, One, you know, where do you see people go wrong with this? uh, And and, you know, how do you become more effective at it beyond just the numbers aspect of it?
2: it's a great question. First of all, you really have to be yourself, like show up and be a genuine human being and realize that you're having a conversation with another human being. So there might be a script or a formula to follow, which by the way, those are useful because it gets you out of your head. Mm. Like if there's a framework to follow, you're not, you can actually listen to people rather than be up in your head Thinking about the next thing you're supposed to say while they're talking, so it's it's valuable to have some kind of training or framework, um, but it also understanding that sales is essentially presenting someone with a solution to a problem they have and empowering them to say yes to that solution. And so, for me personally. I always want people I'm more about educating people that they can figure out like what's going to be best for them. If, if my solution is the answer, great. And if it's not, at least either way, that person is walking away, understanding something about themselves or their needs or their desires that they can then do something about so i think a big aspect of it is you really need to sell something that you actually give a shit about yeah so like you said when you were making those calls for your event it was so easy and fun because you cared it's why you know with cutco i really did see how i was helping families like having good knives really does save you time and it's funny because i'm I'm in hawaii right now and i've been in a couple different airbnbs Uh crappy knives are the worst
3: (laughs) I have Cutco Knives because John Rulon was a guest here and he sent me two of those. They're fucking yeah. amazing. Like, They're
2: amazing. You don't realize how much time you save and you got to yeah. be careful now, right? Yep, totally. So, and how much effort you save, all kinds of things. So um, you're, you really are helping people. You're saving people time. You're giving people more time with their family. You're making something easier or you're making something more enjoyable, something they already enjoy doing, more enjoyable and saving the money in the long run. So that was super fun for me. I could get into it. I could be passionate about it. When I was selling uniforms... I just wasn't into it. I didn't care. It wasn't improving anyone's lives. And in some cases it was outfitting people to go to jobs that they hated, which was like a challenge for me. I wasn't into it. Now that I do things that I'm passionate about, I know how much my work helps people. And now that I have years under my belt of doing it and like how many hundreds of comments and responses and things of like that had me crying my face off from people who my work has been able to help. Like I I'll do this till the day I die with so much passion and enthusiasm and, and, That's what I really think the best, quote, sales strategy is genuine enthusiasm and giving a shit because that is magnetic. People want like I've had, you know, the movie When Harry Met Sally, Mm -hmm. like uh, Laura Belgrade, who I know you've had on the show. She's like, your marketing strategy is like I'll have what she's having effect. People just. (laughs) it's magnetic because you like yourself and you enjoy what you do. And people want that people crave that. And when it's an embodied thing, they're like, how do I do that? You know? Mm -hmm. So the other thing is depending on whatever is the product, um, understands that the product sells itself. Like you get to demonstrate, you get to show, uh, how, this thing, you know, really works and walk your talk. So, you know, being in integrity and being in alignment is another really great sales strategy. So I, I answered it from like some left brain and some right brain sure, perspectives. Yeah. Did all of that make sense? Oh, yeah, it
3: does. I mean, I, I have a question about the left brain, right brain thing, but we're going to get to that later. Um, yeah. You know, one of the other questions I had for you is from your time as a personal trainer, what did you learn about changing human behavior?
2: Oh, my God, people, there needs to be a compelling event or a compelling reason for most people. A lot of people won't do something to actually change unless they're A, in enough pain that they're willing. It's almost like they've hit rock bottom and they're no longer willing to tolerate the pain or there's a reason. So, you know, when I was a personal trainer, I had a lot of brides. One year, I think it was 2009. I think I trained 14 brides that year. hmm Nothing's more compelling than photos that are going to be in your house for hopefully the rest of your life and being like the center of attention. Yeah. Uh, for some people, it's a health thing or their doctor told them, you know, this it's either medication or this, you know, so there has to be a really compelling event or a really compelling reason. I notice, and I know you and I just had a conversation a lot about habits, mm-hmm. and I think it comes back to the thing that we were just saying about sales it really has to matter it no. really has to be significant and important enough that it compels a person to show up and be consistent with something that at first might require a bit of willpower and quite a bit of effort until they can get into that, like, second nature place.
1: Mm,
3: wow. Okay, so I want to go back to the left brain, right brain thing, because one of the things that has always struck me about you and your story is that, uh, you know, I know you and I have had conversations about intuition and, and, you know, what I often (laughs) will label as new age bullshit, um, Hmm? which it's not in a lot of cases. But you're, to me, you're this interesting paradox, because I know that you've also got this very sort of left brain, you know, logical, you're making shit happen balanced with this very right brain sort of intuitive heart centered approach to how you do things. And I'm I'm curious how that balance occurs. Like, how did that even happen?
2: So I... Realize this retrospectively. I've always been super intuitive and tapped in and empathic, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that. Um, but when you're young, you just experience it as the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And in some t- in some cases, uh, depending on the people surrounding you or the environment you grew up in, you might be shamed for that. Or for some people, it actually is encouraged. But most of us learn to kind of shut that down because it appears to be weak or makes us high maintenance. And so most people are not cultivating that from a young age. And again, since our culture is like very linear, right, we need to follow the rules, go advance to the grades, get the right answers on the tests, do the job interviews, like follow the instructions. This is the way it's done. Follow this and you'll be successful. Um, that's very the left brain. Mm-hmm we learn that we get indoctrinated into that. And I, I really was so that, that hustle hustle, like kind of like the Gary V approach to life, just yeah. like working 25, yeah. eight <laughs> is um, that's what, that's what I was doing. But then I got into my twenties, I got out of school and I started to, the struggle, the perceived struggle was very real in my life. It was very hard for me. Even when I was at Kako, I was doing well. There were so many peaks and valleys. Um, and, and, and so there were like the, the I learned the energy of hustle, but I didn't necessarily learn the healthy expression, which is like systems and structure, um, so that you could like be organized and, you know, manage your money or your household or your schedule and things like that. I just thought I needed to work harder and do more. So there's like unhealthy, there's healthy and unhealthy to each. And, and I realized I very much was in unhealthy in both. And then when it came to like the more right brain creative. Side of things, I just didn't honor it very much and I hadn't really adapted or attuned myself into my own expression of it. And I think that's where a lot of like uh, the new age bullshit comes in Uh because when people are getting into like the right brain creative or even into like self-help or spirituality, Uh when people – Bridge into spiritual bypass, which is using the very practices that are supposed to be helping you to deny what's actually going on in your world or to bypass like the reality of certain situations. Um, It's not productive. So we need to figure out the healthy and unhealthy balance. And, you know, for me, for many years, I was someone who had to learn the hard way. So the fact is I got my ass kicked enough to realize that I had to find a better, I don't like the word balance because balance implies 50 50 and it's never 50 50, Mm -hmm. but to realize what's, what's the better harmony, what's the better application for me. And here's what I came to realize. I have a ton of energy. I can get things done, especially when I'm passionate about it. I can go all day. Like nothing will stop me. I also, it could be very impulsive and there's a difference between impulse and intuition. It took me a year. Like, honestly, Srini, I didn't really get this and start to use it to my advantage until last year. I was making so many impulsive decisions and then having to clean up my messes on the back end. And one of the reasons why is because as I was like, hustle, 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 get it done, just keep moving forward – I would make these impulsive choices and then later on be like, oh man, that wasn't the best choice. And what I realized is when the impulse hits, that's when I need to just slow down and pause and like tune into my intuition. However it is that I do that, it's different for everyone. And then I can make a really great decision. And so by taking the time up front to tune in beyond impulse into my intuition... I can then lay out a better plan. Then I can go and use that left brain. Okay, cool. What's the best way to approach this? I can use my intellect as well or ask for help if I need it. And so it's a matter of knowing how they complement each other and it's different for everyone, but in general, the, the harmonization between system structures and when to apply hard work and, you know, impulse, intuition, creativity, imagination, and, and how to like dance between the two in a way that continuously moves you forward and is making progress.
3: Wow. Okay. So one other question comes from this. You mentioned peaks and valleys and there's no way I was going to let you get out of this conversation without talking about <laughs> the valleys because you asked me oh, about yeah. mine. So I'm curious, one, what yours were and more importantly, how you pulled out of them.
2: Yeah. So this goes back to my mom from the conversation earlier. Luckily, having at least one like steady, consistent parent with a good income, I was very fortunate to have a safety net There were, I mean, I couldn't even count for you how many times I was like a little short on my rent or I knew like I wanted to do a program or a training or something that I knew would help. And I would call my mom and she would really, really, really help me out during all the times when I just like was not making enough money. Um, (laughs) or and or not managing my money very well, you know? So I was, I was super fortunate. And, you know, one of those decisions was back in 2010, I'd actually, I didn't know what to do. And I was still kind of following the patriarchal structure. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll go to grad school. So I started at George Washington University for a degree in exercise science. I thought maybe if I can get into exercise physiology, I can work in corporate wellness and I can get myself out of this like having to trade time for dollars as a personal trainer, and constantly be hustling for new clients. Well, I lasted about two and a half months. (laughs) It was the worst. Um, And around that time, I met a friend, Sarah Jenks, and she was like, oh, have you ever heard of Marie Forleo? And I'm like, no, who's this? So I go to MarieForleo.com. There were some YouTube videos. This was 2010. So Marie's videos then were definitely not what they are now. But I was like, I like this person. I actually this person reminds me a lot of myself. If this woman can do this, I can do this. So I went to Marie's event in November of 2010 and Todd Herman, um, who people may or may not know, Mm -hmm. spoke at that event. And one of the things Todd shared was, you know, he was a coach. He had been mentored by Jim Rohn and he didn't have all these degrees or PhDs in academia academic credentials, but, um, he had friends who did. And so many of his friends were envious of Todd's agility and flexibility, what he was able to do and the types of people he was able to work with, um, at his young age as well, because he hadn't spent so many years in school. And I was like, in that moment, I literally broke down in tears and I was like, Oh my God, I don't have to finish grad school. And I never went back after that event. That was in the middle of November. I didn't even finish the semester. I was like, I'm out, thank God. And I instead decided to work with Marie when she was still doing a mastermind. I'm like, cool, let me learn how to, you know, take my skills and passions and whatever. And, and, you know, build my own business because I'm pretty sure that's what I'm built for anyway. But it took, there was so much shame, you know, and I know you can relate to this when you're not built to work the system the way the system is meant to be worked. It's so easy to be like, what's wrong with me? I'm a good person. I'm a smart person. It's not unlike people who like can't lose weight or, you know, struggle with money and it's like, but I'm smart and I care and I'm willing to do the work. What the hell is going on here? So that my 20s were kind of painted by that. A lot of the like ups and downs and like the emotional turmoil of feeling like I had so much to contribute and so much potential but not knowing how the hell to actually put it in the world in a way that could help people.
3: Mm-hmm. So, you know, the periods in which, um, you know, you wonder how you're going to make rent and you, you just don't have enough money to actually sustain, you know, what you're doing. I'm curious how you keep those periods from becoming really uh, debilitating internal narratives.
2: So what I'm going to share might not apply to everyone because I think it has a lot to do with how I'm wired as a person. I just always trust that I'm going to make it work and I'm going to figure it out. And I might have to do a little damage to like my credit report, or I might have to incur some interest charges and make some late payments, but I will figure it out. So I've always been very resilient in that sense and very willing to do whatever it takes. And so I could get upset, but I would I would find a way out of it and I think it really helped always that I've always believed in some kind of guiding force in the universe call it god call it whatever you want to call that like uh, there's no way I'm put here just to like suffer and struggle like there has to be a time when all of this effort pays off so I'm just going to keep making it and I'm just going to keep caring and so so that's what I would do and and I, you know I beat myself into the ground a little bit um Energetically around that, I got myself involved in some situations that were not entirely in integrity or in my best interest, but I just thought it was the best option at the time. And then I had to deal with those consequences. But I never just like quit. I've never been a person to get stuck or not or stop taking action. So I, I've, I've always been able to stay in action. Maybe it wasn't the most productive or the most efficient action, but I would always just do something, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, massive public failures when it came to creative projects or business-related stuff?
2: Um, you know, when I hear public failure, uh, for some reason, I assume ridicule. And so I've never had anything where like I flopped and it was I got like negative reviews or people were like, this sucks or whatever. But I've certainly had things where like no one signed up or I thought this was going to be the next best thing in my business. And it just it wasn't. Um, And I'll, I'll share an example, even just from last year, I launched a membership site that was still every once in a while. I still get seduced by the things that other people do that I'm not built for. And so I launched a membership site. Even though like membership site is like the digital version of having to show up to a freaking job at the same time, <laughs> like all the time, you know, and I realize that now, like to have to be on the hook for something the same time every single week, other than my podcast, because I can record that whenever I want, you know, yeah. but the membership thing for me, not a model that works for me. And and also I realized like one of the reasons I wrote a book, one of the reasons I have a podcast is to be able to serve Everyone, including the people who might not be able to afford, you know my programs or coming to my events or coming to a retreat or whatever. And so I had that in place. And so I created this because I wanted to be able to serve and have resources for people who maybe didn't have the budget for my other programs and other offerings. But the problem is, that's how I measure overgiving. Uh, it was i was undercharged i was i was really giving way more and some people actually suggest that like underpromise overdeliver but it doesn't work when you're the creator of a thing because you need to be fed and you need to be nourished and so i was feeling so resentful that i was giving so much high quality at such a low investment that then it wasn't high quality anymore because i wasn't super showing up for it so um i quit Halfway through, I said to people, listen, if you feel like you haven't gotten your $159 worth, I'm happy to give you a partial refund. Um, and I'll just like deduct the months that have already passed. If you feel like you've gotten your value, great. But like this is I'm discontinuing this program. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sorry. But if you're disappointed, I totally understand. And no one was pissed at me. People were like, "Thank you so much for demonstrating honoring yourself, because this is one of the things that I teach, and and for demonstrating that you could pivot and that you could change your minds and that you can quit something with grace." And I learned that largely from Danielle Laporte. I've seen her do it a couple of times, mm. and I was like, "Cool, if she could do it, I could do it." And yeah. so that 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 was my most recent. Mm-hmm. And and literally out of mm, probably close to 200 people, I think three people asked for a refund. Yeah, everyone else was just like, "Thank you so much. This was awesome. I will continue to use this." source it was cool
3: interesting the reason i asked that is because you know about the fact that i pulled the plug on an event the second time we attempted to do afterwards a massive success so it, i was curious yeah. kind of you know I, it, like i remember that was a, a moment of immense amount of shame for me but yeah. i think the, the best piece of advice i got was from somebody who said you know what he's like you'll recover from canceling he said it's going to be a lot harder to recover from being fifty thousand dollars in the hole if this doesn't work out
2: uh, and also showing up yeah not wanting to be there totally Theres a bit uh oh, there's such a cost to that,
3: yeah, so I, I want to finish our conversation by asking you about the you know comment that you made on body of work and how. This idea of this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life emerged from what you've read. And I'm curious how people find that. I mean, you know, for me, I think it it really comes down to this entire ethos of unmistakable, but that was a process of iteration and discovery and trying things until I realized, yeah, this is it. This one word is kind of the defining ethos of everything that I do.
2: Yeah, I believe that a lot of it has to do with realizing that everything you've done up until now has been training to find the thing all the skills all those crappy jobs and you have no way of knowing until you're there whether it was a connection you made or a skill set you developed or an experience you needed to have or exposure to like a culture or an environment or something that showed you what you're like uniquely here to help people with and here's the deal The iteration, I'm all about that because my work continues to grow and evolve and change. You and I were talking about this at the coffee shop a couple weeks ago. For many years, I've been coaching people. When my current mentorship is over, I'm not coaching people anymore. I'm going all in on everything to do with my core Wild Soul Movement program, my teacher training, and all that stuff and everything around the core message, which is everything you've ever needed has always been inside of you. I decided, because I am uniquely wired to like not care so much what other people think and, and not have those debilitating things that stop me in my tracks, that part of what I'm here for is to go first, take the risks, I'm very, uh, Danielle Laporte calls it risk erotic, I'm not risk averse, I'm willing to take the risk that a lot of other people aren't. So I'm willing to be the one that goes first and goes, "Hey y'all, look, I didn't die. This might work for you too." And it took me a lot of doing that to realize, "Oh, this is what it was that this is what it was all for because that's all I've ever done." And so I don't even remember, and to be honest, I didn't even finish body of work. I got through the first two chapters. Mm. I was on the on a plane from LA to New York when the idea for Wild Soul Movement landed and I was like, "Oh, cool." let me take this thing and run with it. And it was the thing. And, and again, it's about the action because you can't know it's the thing until you're doing it. And you're like, yes, this is what, this is like the moment. This is the feeling I've been waiting for. This is the inexhaustible enthusiasm, the energy that I could do this all day, all night, like keep going. Sometimes I need a break, but then I'm re-energized to get back into this. So I think, I think I answered the question. Did I?
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have one last question, which, um, I, I'm, Sure, I've probably asked you this at one point or another, uh, considering you were on the show a couple years ago, but uh, this is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: Uh, Commitment to being themselves. The only thing any of us have... That sets us apart from anyone else is that we are literally a one of a kind, unique human in all the different ways, um, energetically, emotionally, physically, creatively, the way our mind works, our consciousness, our intelligence, like we're very unique. And so I think that's the only thing that makes anyone unmistakable is that they really just are one of a kind Mm. and how they choose to apply that though, will determine whether or not the world gets to experience you as unmistakable. Mm.
3: Well, uh, I think that makes a very fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work?
2: com. Cool.
3: And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
5: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more